Hello and welcome to the Delphian podcast. Delphian is an artist-led nomadic gallery focusing on emerging and early career artists. Each episode will feature a different art world practitioner, from artists and gallerists to collectors and curators. If you liked today's episode, please like, share and subscribe. Hello and welcome to the next edition of the Delphian podcast. Um, I'm Benjamin Murphy, as always, and with me is Nick Jess Thompson. Hello. Today we're in the studio of Kiara Williams. Um, she's an artist, gallerist and educator. Um, she launched the WW Gallery from her house in 2008 and in 2012 launched the annual Solo Award on London Art Fair. Hello and thanks for having us in the studio. Hello, thanks for coming. Nice to meet you. Yeah. So, like us, you seem to have got many artistic, curatorial, educational projects going on um, at the same time. Why? Do you feel the need to be involved in all the different things at once? Do you think it feeds into your work? Um, I think like a lot of us, and I don't know if it's a generational thing, but we, you know, maybe our parents or our parents' parents' generation had that whole do one career, do it, yeah. and mm. go and do that all your whole life and then mm. retire. And I think I remember when I was growing up, there seemed to be a lot of pressure at certain points, whether it was GCSEs or A-levels, to try and focus on what it is you're going to do, or what you're going to do when you're growing up. And I had things pulling me in different directions, and I always have. Um, you know, and I, I remember thinking, I remember people saying, oh, you can't be jack of all trades, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. People would always say that to me, um, you know, you can't be... You can't be doing all these different things um, and obviously if you're going to do something really well it does require a bit of focus and determination but um, I suppose I've sport for choice really um, mm. lucky enough I suppose I was lucky enough to be to have different influences and different interests um, that seemed sometimes a bit contradictory um, and I, I always knew I wanted to be an artist, although from a very young age I also was, um, what's the word, um, it was suggested to me that it wasn't going to be a financially rewarding <laughs> yeah. um, path to take. So, you know, like a, lot of, like a lot of people, I'm sort of made sure I did all the academic things as well and then... Um, did my teacher training after my degree, after my art degree, did my teacher training as something, as my mum put it, to fall back on. Okay. Um, and then ended up um, as, a art, as an art history lecturer, um, also teaching life drawing and then latterly teaching on foundation and mm -hmm. access courses and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and, um, um, but that wasn't completely satisfying. Um, and I found that when I was doing that, I couldn't really, didn't have the energy to make my work. Mm -hmm. um, so I, when I finally decided to start curating projects and, and running a gallery, um, I realised that actually, although it's really tough and again still not financially rewarding, running a gallery or organising you know exhibitions, projects wherever they are, whether they're in a in a um, set place or whether they're, they're pop ups, does actually require a lot of the skills that. I suppose I had without playing my own trumpet too much, um, because although I'm an artist, I'm not 100% happy if I'm just always in the studio on my own. I yeah, I'm a people person. Yeah. I like I like social interaction. I get a real buzz from working with other people, from hearing about other people's work, 
and from, and from putting people together and organising mm. things. So, um, you know, but also I couldn't just do that. That would also drive me crazy. So I need the balance. Um, so I'm a people person, I suppose. I'm someone who's very at home talking to people, um, whether that's one-to-one or to like hundreds of people in lectures. I'm lucky that I haven't got that shyness that a lot mm. of people do have. Um, again, it sounds like I'm being really arrogant, but I, I just like, I just have that. I'm quite, you know, I'm quite relaxed about talking in, in front of people, even if I do sort of mumble and, and waffle sometimes. But um, yeah, so I think it was just a number of different things and, and naturally an organiser and actually quite assertive um and yeah so that sort of led itself to to organizing exhibitions and so does the the curation of other people's work and the teaching of other people's work influence your own work in any way how Um, you think about your own work how you make it i suppose um i mean i suppose i'm quite open and like i maybe do sometimes take borrow steel from other people um, but um, I found that once when I started running the gallery space and it, and it started to become more serious um, um, with show after show after show and all the promotion and marketing involved and all that my own work completely took a back seat um, because it wasn't it just wasn't sustainable to do to do the two being an art although I although I said before that being an artist and being a curator are two like definitely both skill sets sort of within my skill set. They are it is a different hat, I suppose. And so my my own work took a backseat. Also because I didn't have a studio at that time. And um, and what I found and what my co-curator Deborah Wilson, what we both found together, especially curating things together was that it was a really creative process in itself. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So like I heard you say, and I've heard other people say, um, that it became, um, that the exhibition became a whole work, as mm. a kind of Gesamtkunst work. Like a, so, so we were, at the beginning especially, we were doing quite a few group shows that were thematically linked by a kind of overall vision that, that we had. And that was a way of us flexing our muscles, trying things out, and assembling artists and working with different people and sort of seeing who, you know, who, who we worked well with and who worked well with each other and that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, I, I didn't, I hadn't expected curating to be as um, creatively rewarding and, you know, I think it just, for me, I just put all my creative energy into that and that's, and that's why I wasn't making my own work. I think it's a shame that more curators don't see it, don't see the curatorial act as as creative as it is. Well, I don't know. I I think, I think it depends who you are, because it seems that the role of a curator is quite is quite loose. Mm. Um, historically as well, curate to curate comes from Latin curare, which just means to look after. Yeah. So you know, curators of big museums like British Museum and stuff, they are guardians essentially of the collection mm. and looking after it, keeping it, you know, in order, um, injecting new life into it when necessary. It's a different the the way that the verb to curate came came about in the sort of mid two thousands 
and after that it got ridiculous at one point. I mean, people were curating gigs. Yeah. Um, now, now, it doesn't, now it doesn't sound that strange to say curate a gig, but at the time, you know, people yeah. were curate, you know, curating your outfit, curating a gig, and it kind of got a little bit ridiculous. Um, became a very, very sort of um, overused word. Um, and I think, it, I think the meaning and role of a curator depends on where their background yeah. is. Um, I suppose I just meant I'm kind of sick of just going to a gallery and it's all the paintings the same size, they're hung on the same level and it's just yeah, it's stand not, in the middle and turn your head and you're done. Yeah, yeah. well that's not really curating, that's yeah. hosting an exhibition, but that's what I, how I see it, yeah. Um, there will come a time when you probably will be so tired of doing creative, creative <laughs> curating that you will want just to have, oh yeah, it's quite nice to just have one, you just stick the... Well, for certain certain types of work, here, that that is yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Yeah. the format that works but, best. But. but yeah, it's a lot of work doing that creative thing, and also keeping that then balanced. If you are as a curator doing something that is really creative with other people's work, then you then then there's sometimes a fine line, isn't there? There's yeah. about and that there has to be a negotiation and, and a dialogue with the artists. Like they have to be, they have to know. You know, it's got to be. A, yeah. two-way thing so mm. yeah so a lot of the time artists would make work we commissioned work for shows obviously mm. and I'm sure that's what you're doing um but yeah it was it's great I really enjoyed it how did you get started doing it with um, your partner and so um I was teaching at that point in a sixth form college in Hackney yeah and my um my new friend who was uh, Deborah Wilson was the art the sort of head art technician there um, and we just hit it off and planned our escape <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and talked about trying to find a space mm -hmm. and this was in 2004, 5, 6 sort of, you know, yeah. we were looking for, we were actively looking for spaces in Hackney from, you know, approaching the council, looking at disused spaces, um, but it was still when everything, property was booming, mm. um, so things it wasn't feasible for one reason or another um, and we ended up using my house which is a Victorian terrace house on Hackney Downs okay. um, and sort of just emptied it out painted the walls grey floors white uh, floors white floors grey walls white and we um, over the course of the summer we sort of just did that transformation and then we we had a show which the first show was pretty much us and some of our friends and we didn't want it to be that forever, but it mm. was just a way of kicking things off. Yeah. Um, and I suppose that was when we started to discover how creative it could be. And also how, I mean, again, around that time, more people were talking more and more about artist-run spaces. There are other, there were other artist-run spaces, mm. but it was, I mean, it, there were artist-run spaces that had been running for ages, but in terms of being publicly talked about or articles written about it was sort of still new-ish mm. and I think we felt that being artists and curators and gallerists and cross and doing that crossover meant that we you know could hopefully bring a better deal for the artists and mm. potential collectors and you know just sort of um, mix it up a bit um, mm. so what are some so there's there's kind of a lot of um, artists curating exhibitions in unusual spaces mm -hmm. nowadays. And I think it's probably due to the kind of the insane rents that um, hiring spaces mm -hmm. involves. 
What are some of the um, kind of challenges or freedoms that doing a show in your own house presented? Um, freedoms obviously were financial. Um, it, it, it made a, a big difference because we could take risks um, and we didn't have to think about being commercially viable. Yeah. Which is something that we didn't really ever want to do. We want, we obviously we wanted to sell work for the artists and for ourselves, but we wanted that to be a byproduct. We didn't want to be focused on that. We wanted to be experimental and really project based about how we were approaching things. We wanted to give artists free reign um, and commission things. And so there, the house was transformed, you know, quite dra drastically a few times. Um, but the, the, the constraints were that after a while, the space becomes so familiar that you start to kind of get itchy feet. Mm. Um, and so we did, because of that, we did quite a few offsite projects, which I can talk about. Um, and the other thing that was limiting about it was it was a Victorian terrace house. So domestic proportions, albeit very, very light and you know beautiful high ceilings. Mm. And actually the good thing about it was it doesn't really have any well, good. I mean, it doesn't have any period features really because it well, because it, there'd been a fire, I think. So it was, just <laughs> very, it was just very kind of it was like on the outside of Victorian terrace. But when you go in, although the room proportions were that it was quite mm. sort of clean yeah. space. But um, but those domestic proportions obviously did um, inform the kinds of works that could physically get in there um, and also just suit the space. Um, and so as a result, you know, as, the, as we became, as our reputation grew and people started to want to coll collaborate with us, um, there, was, there was a spate of, I mean, I think we, d we did one show we did a couple of shows that played on the domestic the domesticity of the space, you know, mm. the domestic proportions of it. Yeah. yeah. And thereafter, I got so many people sending proposals in for kind of domestic based shows that mm. I just thought, oh god, what makes them think that I'm gonna we're gonna want to do another ten shows around that same kind yeah. of thing, you know? Um. So I found that a bit limiting. Um. And the location, it was a bit still of a no go. Yeah. Then that part of Hackney Downs, it was just off what was called Murder Mile. Um, but we did benefit from things like First Thursdays, we were involved with from very early on. And I remember being really excited when the first coach, First Thursdays coach, came up and parked there and they all spilled out. Yeah. It was really nice. Um, so, yeah, and, and then personally, lim limitations were that I was living uh, in a very cramped. Like I had all the furniture and all my stuff sort of in one small room, my bedroom. Yeah. And at first it had been quite a novelty to mm. trip through this empty space to get through to, to get to my kitchen, which was hidden. And, you know, it's quite a novelty living in a gallery. And then after a while it got kind of... How, how long <laughs> yeah. were the shows on? For? So in that space, nearly four years. And were they consecutive? Yeah. Wow. So you just... Wow. <laughs> yeah, so it was full on. Yeah, that we, sounds intense. <laughs> it was intense. We yeah. kind of, we did sort of... Yeah, burn ourselves out a little bit. Um, I mean, there were obviously there were little gaps here and there, but we were we were raking up eight, nine, sometimes ten shows a year, um, and uh, and seemed at that time to have limitless energy. <laughs> <laughs> what about the offsite projects? What were some of the so, favourites of those? So the one, well, so the first one to mention is Venice Biennale. Mm -hmm. um, 
So when we were still on that very first show in 2008, September, which, by the way, is also when the recession, the news, and we didn't feel it. First, we made some sales in those first few shows, and we were like, oh, this is great. But uh, around then, September, October, I got it in my head that we were going to do the Venice Biennale. And a few people, a few of my friends said, oh, maybe you should just take it easy and see how it goes first. But because of the fact that Biennale is only every two years, and two years seemed ages. Yeah. Mm. So uh, we got ourselves organised and decided just to do a guerrilla, um, you know, an unofficial show of some description. Um, and we knew that we weren't, it wasn't going to be sustainable if it was just me and Deborah organising it. So we gathered... We paired up with um, a curator called Sophie Wilson, no relation to Deborah, but a friend uh, from f- what was then Faros Gallery. Um, she now heads up her own um, media agency called Tuesday Media mm-hmm. and isn't really in, in, the, in the art world anymore, but she was part of the team and we ca- gathered about, well, there are eight of us together, eight women, some artists, some curators. And um, we, we just sort of set about organising this show which the remit for which was how can we do a really attention-grabbing show in Venice that is unofficial but will involve as many people as possible and Mm. on a really tiny budget and what theme can we work around that or what kind of how can we hold it together so I came up with the title Travelling Light um and seems apt yeah <laughs> and that was that was the kind of that was the focus of it all so what we what we set up is we set up an open call which unfortunately I know it's controversial but we did charge people mm-hmm. to submit work to be part of this Venice Biennale show and that is how we funded um, how we funded our trip there and the venue and everything we hired a beautiful residential flat which was not strictly legal because, well, you know, because yeah. anyway, yeah. but we did that knowing that we might, um, we might get uh, tripped up by the local police, but that we were willing to take that risk and that we were doing it as a guerrilla thing anyway. We, um, uh, all the works, the open call was basically everyone had to send work in an A4 envelope. That was the maximum size. It could be a padded envelope or a normal mm-hmm. envelope. And then the work could be any size as long as it fit into that envelope. Okay. So those were the, the, the um, that was the dogma. And then we had some amazing imaginative things, things that blew up, things that unfolded, paintings, sculptures, all sorts. We had about 500 entries, wow. which was a lot considering we were brand new. Mm. And, um, and we did it internationally. So of course it was administratively like very <laughs> full on for us. <laughs> Um, but anyway, in the end, we took fifty-eight artists, okay. and the reason, um, the reason for the traveling light thing was that we so we had the show first in my house, in London, in the in the in the gallery WW Gallery, and then we packed it back up, up again, and then we took it in our hand luggage, <laughs> nice. and we put all of our clothes and things into the hold, but we had all the work in the hand luggage, and all eight of us were on the plane, the same plane that all the other journalists and people were going to the Venice Biennale on. Mm. And then we were handing out leaflets to the journalists on the plane saying, our Venice Biennale show is in the overhead lockers. <laughs> um, and so, you know, really just maximising on any gimmick we could because no one knew who the hell we were. Yeah. And, um, and it was great. And, you know, we had a lot of really positive reaction. Mm. The work was also good quality work and imaginative work. Um, 
And so then, yeah, so the, the show also, because of the fact that the gallery was in a domestic space, it mm. also then made sense. So it wasn't completely arbitrary that we um, hired this uh, apartment that had an, uh, um, had its own fireplace with a mantelpiece and had... Yeah. It was, it was mirroring the London space. Um, and as much as possible, we, we hung it in a sort of in a way that mirrored the London space. Mm. Um, and so it just worked really well. It worked really neatly. So that, that was, was, was one of the big, big things for us, even though it was yeah. right at the very beginning. Two years later, we did another Venice Biennale show, oh, and that nice. was called Afternoon Tea. And that was, um, again, in a, in a residential apartment, but bigger and grander this time. Um, the exhibition was in the entrance hall downstairs. Uh, off Campo San Polo, which is a, a main square, so very easily accessible. Um, and for that, we again had works on this time it was works on paper, A3 size. Um, and the, the gimmick this time was that we were ser- making and serving afternoon tea and, po- and sort of proposing ourselves as an outpost of the British Pavilion because in mm-hmm. the British Pavilion, or well, the British Pavilion in Venice, used to be a tea rooms. So we were sort of doing that. Mm. And both times, um, so the second time we had about 70-something artists. I've forgotten exactly. But but, um, we were emboldened by what happened the first time because Mm. the first time, although we'd set out to be, um, as I said, unofficial, the British Council, I did send the information to the British Council and they did list us on their map. So we were listed Mm. um, with the Scottish and the Irish and the British Pavilion and all of that, and that was amazing. Um, and that's why we got into trouble as well, because the police then was like... Yeah. yeah. But that, that was all part of it. They, they sort of, um, we ended up having to take the show down a day early. Um, but um, it was all part of the excitement. But mm. then the second time, we ran it as a private event, but we were still on the map, on the British Council map and on all the official maps, but, we, but without having to pay the... I think twenty five thousand euro More. fee that you have to, to be at an official yeah. event, and so people had to make bookings for afternoon tea, and then while they were having their afternoon tea, they could peruse the work, and so we did it like that, and it was mm. great. We had Mike Nelson and um, you know all the you know all the official people came. Yeah. It was really it was really nice. Um, so yeah, that was that was like my probably my favorite yeah. offsite thing to do. Um, but there are there are others. But um. so tell us about the solo award because it seems like um, a lot of what you do is very like inclusive and artist run and kind of community based almost. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so can you tell us about the award? Yeah. And kind of, so um, that's still running, right? Well, it's it actually last year. it happened. It's actually on pause this okay. year, and I'll come to that in a minute. But. The reason we set up the Solo Award was, and I don't know how, if you're finding this yet, but, you know, we, we set up, when we set up, we are artists running a space for other artists, and we were very, you know, down to earth and just getting on with it. And then as the reputation grew, we were getting more and more emails from artists, because at first the challenges were, who are we going to show, and like, what, and then all of a sudden you're like, inundated, we were inundated with artists and mm. then there are only 12 months in the year only like you know there was we yeah. couldn't possibly yeah. support everyone and so whilst yes the intentions were to try and be inclusive and democratic and everything then you kind of find yourself 
oh now I get it, I get it why those big galleries sometimes just don't answer your emails and stuff. It got overwhelming and there was just me and Deborah and we're not paid for our time and you know you can't, if you get an email from someone saying oh please have a look at my work, tell me what you think, you can't just, uh, you, can't, you, can't, it, it, you can't give it a 30 second reply, you have to, yeah. Yeah. you either have to put it in a file, I'm going to look at that later, or you have to look at it, spend time looking at it and give it a considered response. Mm. And, you know, that was the problem we had. We had a lot of amazing people um, sending us stuff and we, we didn't have, we also had jobs and we didn't have the time to, to manage it. So we thought, let's try and, you know, cynically, in a way, let's try and monetize that a little bit. Not that we want to, like, rip off artists, but, you know, we... If, if we're going to be looking and giving feedback, we also need to be paid for our time. Um, we started doing artist surgeries. That was another thing we did where we charged people and they would come and we'd like look at their portfolio and try and kind of give them structured support and blah, blah. And then the mm. other thing was the solo award, um, which was a way of when people approached us with work that we were like, oh, this is quite interesting, but we haven't really got any time or any space, any opportunities. We'd say, have a look at this solo award we're setting up. Think about submitting your work to that, and then you know we can have a look at it in that context. And that's sort of what we did. We tried to start funneling all these these inquiries into the solo award, um, and yeah. So we were, we've been having sort of five to six hundred entries every year for the solo award, um, and it also meant that by getting guest judges for it every year, it. Pers- it, it's 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 hard it's hard to you know giving feedback to artists individually if it is is fine but no one likes to be, as an artist myself who applies for things it's not nice particularly being rejected and it's also not nice to reject or not one shouldn't say reject just not select yeah yeah, yeah. and so um, uh, and then you you know that there are awkward situations where it's a friend of a friend or it's mm. a friend and all those kinds of things. Yeah. It's like, oh God, oh, <laughs> yeah, we, we definitely found that. Yeah. You know, how, you know, um, and then, you know, you're worried about being accused of nepotism, you know, mm. but you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't sometimes. And um, it's a really, really tricky one to balance. And the only way is to just try and be transparent and try and just be honest and tell people it's really hard. And so we set up the Solo Award, which is was a competition, if you like, um, but but we invited guest judges. So we had we've had some amazing judges. We've had Alison Wilding, we've had um, Robin Klasnick from Matt's Gallery, we've had um, uh, Kate Davis, we've had Carol- Charlotte Mullins, we've had Kerry Hand. Um, just some great um, people have come on board, and they have looked at all the work with us. Um, and then we've had long lists and short lists and mm-hmm. um, then the, the, the winner, the first two years actually, the winner from 2012, the first two years the winner had an exhibition in our uh, gallery space which by that point was in Hatton Garden because we moved okay. in 2012 to a space in Hatton Garden. Um, so they had a month long show and then um, we thought that actually it would be more valuable to have, to, for the winner to have a um, stand at the London Art Fair. Mm. Yeah. Um, it comes with its own challenges because there's obviously a difference between putting on a solo show in a bespoke gallery space than a, compared to a stand. But I quite, maybe because I've always been, me and Deb have both always been attracted to um, 
sort of slightly perverse, I, you know, things that don't quite fit. People are like, well, you're a not-for-profit, why would you go into this commercial, not, you know, uh, yeah, commercial art fair that doesn't really, uh, it, it seemed a bit of a strange one, but I quite liked that, that idea of, of curating something um, that, you know, for which we didn't need to sell, um, but that selling could be a, a good byproduct. Um, so that then became the prize, the stand at the London Art Fair, plus a thousand pounds prize money. Plus, of course, that we always worked quite closely with the winner each year. Um, between the time that the prize was announced, which is sort of end of May, beginning of June, until the show in January, there's a six month period for them to develop new work. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been surprising every year. Uh, and uh, yeah, I've made some really great new friends through it. And it's, it's so different. I mean, that's, yeah, what I was gonna say is when we started way back in 2008, we did lots of group shows. But then after a while, obviously I recognised whether it was a Venice Biennale or a group show in Hackney, in WW, they are, group shows are really, 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 really admin heavy. Yeah. Um, mm. And very, uh, yeah, exhausting, mm. or can be exhausting, especially if there are a couple of artists who just aren't bringing stuff on time and all that kind of stuff. So I think we moved gradually, and I think it's a natural move, towards working on solo shows and maybe two-person shows and that was something that really just um yeah was a natural process because as you i don't think when you're starting out you're necessarily ready to do a big solo show with an artist that you don't know so you work with people on and off maybe in a solo show in a group show here and another project there and you start to kind of find who you gel with and and you start talking about projects and maybe projects develop over the course of even two or three years. You're mm. like, oh yeah, it would be great to put those two artists together at some point and it maybe doesn't happen for ages. But yeah. those things kind of organically develop. Um, so the solo award um, was a way of sort of formalising that as well. Um, and it was more democratic um, because it wasn't, because it was us meeting new people that we didn't necessarily know. Um, and so I really, I really enjoyed that, whether that was... Uh, Victoria Lucas or Francis Richardson or this year's winner Ilkorn Yun. Um, it's always been a really been a real eye opener and I've learnt a lot from the process. Um, so yeah, Ilkorn had his show in January. That was amazing. It got a lot of press, um, a lot of attention because it looked really stunning. The stand looked stunning, um, and we sold a lot of his work. Right. which is amazing that's the mm. best year we've had so far um then normally i launch the new call at the same time and then we have the deadline around now end yeah. of march beginning of april and then we have the whole but it, it's a it's a big undertaking because it is a whole year-long project so it's sort of it's like painting the golden gate bridge <laughs> yeah. so it's the whole getting getting a new new load of judges on deadlines getting all the um the, the submissions in and then we had the group we had a group show i should say there's a group show of the shortlisted artists and that's what we did at cello factory the last few years and that happens at the end of may um and sorry i'm probably going a bit upside down back to front here but um because i've been running it myself the last couple of years and i also have a very young daughter 
I just had to take a break this year. Well, yeah. And so it, it's on pause. So I haven't didn't launch the the new solo awards mm. um, open call this year. Um, and yeah, a lot of people have sent email inquiries and asked about it. Um, I've been looking at maybe trying to get some sponsorship so that I could um, so that I could take on like some staff to help yeah. me mm. administrate it or you know. Just, I've got to rethink it really and see if it's something that we pick up again next year or yeah sometimes these things just need a bit of a shake up it's been great for the artists I mean Ilkwan at the moment has got a show on that's come directly out of the London Art Fair he's got a show on in Turin excuse me um, and that's ending this weekend and that's been really great um, so yeah I've, I, I'm some of the other solo award winners I've continued working with and I showed them shown them in Margate so that's um, you know it's not like I don't we don't just work with artists and then just drop them um, we try and we can't throw we can't throw 10 grand prizes at them but yeah. mm. we try and give them other forms of, of enrichment yeah, <laughs> yeah. so what sparked the move down to Margate when how long have you been there and because it um, seems like there's a very flourishing art scene. Here. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even realise that there was. When, <laughs> Maybe when you I, created it. No, <laughs> no, 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 definitely not. No, this, this. So the studio block we're sitting in now, Limbo, has been here since two thousand and three. Mm-hmm. It's the oldest, um, the longest-standing artist studios and project space in Margate. Way, way, way predating Turner Contemporary. Um, and it's on the site of a former substation, but it still does provide um, power to a lot of Margate. Um, so there have been artists here for a long time. Funnily enough, that first Venice Biennale show I did, Travelling Light, one of the artists who was in that show was Paul Hazelton, and he started the show. Oh. And I remember him back then, 2008, telling me about this studio building he was he had set up in Margate, and um, I didn't dream that years later I'd be here myself, yeah. so that was, that's a weird one. Um, but um, Turner Contemporary itself also used this building downstairs, the, the whole of the downstairs was a project space at the beginning mm-hmm. and there were only a few studios. So Turner Contemporary used this for a year before they opened in their new building. They also used other shops in the, mm-hmm. in the town. Um, and, other, and other curators have done projects here. Um, but yeah, so there was a, a thriving scene before I came here, but I didn't really really know about it. I mean, I didn't really know about it. Because, only because I'd been a bit off um, off radar. So when I was in London and I was running the space, I was really plugged into everything. And um, when we were running WW, me and Deborah would go to loads and loads of openings. I think, I mean, after a while you do, one can get a bit jaded and the whole art scene and the private view scene can get quite exhausting and I think when you're feeling a bit jaded it's time to just take a break. Didn't want, don't want to burn out and also I didn't want to be false and I, you know, I, it's really important for me that um, that if I'm doing something I'm really really into it, that, that the enthusiasm is, is genuine and there were times when, you know, we were struggling for various reasons um, and I just thought, oh god, I can't do this anymore. It's exhausting, and um, that's that's not it's not a nice place to yeah. be. Um, I then stopped working with Deborah um, 
around about 2013, 14. Um, we still were doing some, we had some great shows going right up until the end. There was one that we took up to Middlesbrough, to Platform A Gallery in Middlesbrough. That was a, a North South Divine, it was called. It was a, a again, a sort of two a show that moved across two spaces that involved Alison Wilding, and that was, that was great. Um, but around that time, we sort of dissolved things um, at the Hatton Garden space. Um, I also then found out that I was pregnant and that was another reason for me to slow down a bit and mm. kind of reconsider yeah, things. That makes sense. And then um, when um, my daughter was about eight months old, I set off with my with my then partner on a, um, a sort of road trip around Europe. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it was just I was I was I always got to that point where I was a bit tired of London and needed a break, yeah. and so that was kind of an art project as well. It was a red van, and we had a website called the Red Van. Um, dot com, where we sort of made work in the van. The van was also a gallery, um, and we 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 stopped in different places outside galleries and sort of did little pop up things, and um, that was that sort of. I met, met artists and galleries and things around Europe. But anyway, so we were traveling and then we'd had enough traveling. Um, I'd had enough of living in a, the confined space of a van. Yeah, living in another gallery. Living in another gallery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, driving, breastfeeding, driving, breastfeeding. Yeah. It, it got, you know, it was amazing. We were spent seven months in Sicily in an apartment there and that was absolutely beautiful. Um, my daughter learnt, learnt to walk in Sicily. That was great. But then it was sort of time to come back and... Mm. Uh, I think I also came back for freeze and for some other things, you know, just like admin stuff. And then um, we thought, oh, let's let's spend a bit of time um, back in the UK, but didn't want to be in London. And I also have a dog that I forgot to mention. He died in August, but lovely dog who has who had arthritis and needed to swim. Um, and so it was very much look at a map. <laughs> Where's near London and cheap <laughs> and near the sea? And we were looking at. Norfolk and Suffolk because I've got some friends there and then a couple of people I knew down here and it hadn't really hadn't looked into no that's not true I did know a couple of people who were here and said that there was this art scene going on but I kind of ignored it in my head I wanted to have nothing to do with that for a while so I thought oh it's nice if there's a bit of culture but you know it's gonna be mm. I was a bit I was probably a bit um I mean I know like who is it um I, I know Amy McKenney who set up TAP in Southend um, and I know other people, you know, over the, over the years me and, and Deborah did research um, lots of kind of coastal and out of London places um, and often the, the, um, the, per, the, the, the group that are trying to do something new and innovative are coming, come, sort of banging their heads against local or sort of more provincial ways of doing things mm. or the you know, slightly different tastes and stuff like that. So I know that I remember Amy saying that in Southend, the local artists didn't really like, didn't really like them coming in and trying mm. to do this sort of thing. So I kind of thought if I'm going to Margate, we'll just, I'll just do my work and just chill out and just take myself out of the art scene for a bit. And then um, I got here and sort of um, realized, I suppose in this month or so before coming that there was a lot more happening. And then I started meeting people. Mm. It's a small scene. There's, so there's there's here, there's Crate next door, there's Bon Vokes. Um, 
but there are lots of things and so I quickly realised oh my god there is loads and then I just ended up by default doing stuff having said that I wasn't going to right well good <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I started yeah. so the things like the first thing I started doing um, was dry run which um, Headley did that recently right oh yeah you know Headley yeah. and Sean yeah so Headley did Headley Headley did a dry run and Sean also his, his partner wife who's an artist as well she also did a dry run yeah so the, I set up the dry run as a kind of like, art crit thing um, from my flat just before I had the studio here, um, as a way of, of, sort of to, to create a little community of artists talking and showing work. And I very much wanted it again. I, I was thinking about when we had run the gallery, what, what worked? Well, what worked, what always worked was the private views, always work. They were great, everyone comes together and hopefully not only has a drink, but also looks at the work. And if they don't, I'm like, oi, look at the work. Um, so uh, that and, and the talking and uh, talking about the work, work in progress, and that's what you miss when you're not at art school and when you're not in a studio. You miss that um, you know, talking to your peers and um, pinging ideas off each other. So that's why I set up Dry Run. It was like a test bed thing. It was, and, and the idea was that it's not a gallery, but people brought work and they did sort of hang it in a room in my, in my house. Um, and it needed to be work that was in progress, that maybe wasn't completely resolved, maybe they weren't sure where it was mm. going. And so I invited one artist, and I asked them to invite another, art, another artist that I didn't know. Okay. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Um, so I invited, I started off inviting people that I did know, and then that's how I ex- expanded the network, and they mm. invited someone I didn't. Um, and, um, yeah, it, it sort of took off. So... And, it, and rather than having the hassle of having a gallery in my house like I yeah. did with WW or like with the van, it was just a, a month, one evening thing, mm. one evening a month. Um, and it was really, it was really nice. And it was focused. And I was quite, um, you know, it was, a, it was a very structured evening. So people would arrive, they'd be directed to look at the work, mm. grab a drink for half an hour, mill around. Then I would introduce the first artist and they would have 10 minutes to talk about their work also and then there'd be questions and interaction and yeah. then I'd introduce the second artist and then they talk about their work and then we'd all sit down again and then there might be a dialogue or a sort of conversation between the two artists um, because sometimes there were reasons why they had chosen the other artists either because the work their work resonated with each other or it might have just been a circumstantial thing yeah. or that might have been completely different but there was always something to talk about and um, yeah so that that was really interesting for me and I got to know lots of great people that way. Right, well if you're in Margate, or I suppose you don't have to be in Margate, you can get the train down. Um, yeah. I'm not doing it at the moment, right. I took okay. a break from that as well, okay. but I have a lot of people emailing me about it. Um, yeah, I've, I've taken a break from Dry Run. Um, Are you planning on starting it back up at some point? I or? might do at some point. I'm trying to, like a, like a lot of people in Margate, I'm trying to um, do some building work, decoration work on my flat. Yeah. Okay. And even though that was only happening once a month, it's sort of hard to yeah. do anything like that. So um, yeah. so that's on that's paused for that reason. Um, and the other thing that I did here was um, create this exhibition with Sean Stamp um, in the Nathan Rock Hotel, which was the At the Violet Hour show. So that was that was quite a big show. That was mm. that completely blew my expectations of 
organising a show in Margate, I didn't really think that um, we'd have that many people come. 500 people came to the opening and 3,000 people came to the, uh, the run of the show. Wow. Um, it was super successful and I think it was super successful not because, I mean, the work was great, but not just because the work was great, but mm. also because it was this um, iconic hotel, old hotel, this building that a lot of people were curious about and had never been inside. It, it was, I suppose, I suppose my approach to it was, so Sean Stamp, who is a, he's both based in London and here, mm -hmm. he said, oh, I've got, um, I might be able to, I, I, I might be, he knows, he knows the owner of the hotel, mm. who also owns the Sands, oh, I might be able to put on a show here, but I can't organise a piss up in a brewery, do you want to help me? And I was like, oh, I don't know, oh. And then I went and saw the hotel, and then I thought about the Turner uh, Turner Contemporary were doing this the Wasteland exhibition, and I'm a huge Elliot T. S. Eliot buff. Um, I'd studied it at school, and although he's, you know, wasn't the nicest man in the world, but I just really love his poetry, and I knew it inside out. And I thought, oh, this is this is too good an opportunity not to capitalize on. So. I said, okay, let's do an exhibition at that hotel because you've got the access to it. Let's tie in with Turner Contemporary mm. and with their Wasteland show, let's get a group of artists together to respond to um, the Wasteland poem um, and just very simply give allocate rooms to different mm. artists. I mean, there were like 80 rooms there, but some of the rooms were still in use for student groups and things, okay. but the two top floors were... I mean, it's in such disrepair, the building. So there were windows that were broken, pigeons had got in, filled pigeon shit. Other, other rooms were just leaking and mouldy. So there were some rooms that we couldn't even use because they were toxic. And then there were others that we couldn't use because they were being used for students. But we had about 25 rooms that we could use. Um, and um, we, we, we had to work quite on quite a tight schedule which meant that we weren't able to get the fund we applied for the funding but there wasn't enough turnaround to, to tweak our proposal and get the funding but um, it was important to me I felt that we opened on the same night as Turner and that we um, again very cheekily a bit like I did it me and Deborah did at the Venice Biennale I sort of I told Turner what we were doing I said you know they were doing a, a, an outreach thing anyway sort of um, there were lots of other people who were tying into the show yeah. and they were creating a map. So I told, so we told them what we were doing and I said, cheekily, you know, after your show opens, why don't you, why don't we have all the people from Turner come to ours and have that sort of after party at ours, the really kind of crazy old 70s dance floor bar thing oh, nice. in the basement. Cool. And, you know, and so, at, you know, knowing that people's curiosity would be piqued yeah. and they'd come for that and, um, and they did. And they did. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And that and so that was just amazing. And but also the work was good. Mm. And so the um so the journalists came and we got written up in the Telegraph and the Times and a few other places that it's all online, I can't remember now. Um it was it was really it was really good. But it did exhaust myself and Sean. It really, really knocked it out of us because it was uh then it was on for six weeks and every weekend was just full, full, full of people and people were coming back several times, like families and kids were coming back again and again. Right. 
So it was really great. And there are no pictures of it on, online at the moment. There's still not any pictures. Why is that? Why is that? It's because we, um, we did everything on a budget. We have, Sean had a friend of his, an amazing photographer, take all these pictures, but he hasn't, he hasn't um, sent them to us yet. And because he's doing it for free, we haven't pushed him. I think he had, um, I think he had a, um, a loss mm. in the family, so we sort of haven't pushed it. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why, why we needed funding. And we, we even said it at the time, you know, not just to pay the artist's fees for the work they were doing and to pay for all the costs of running it, but also, you know, keeping the the momentum up, up afterwards and producing mm. the catalogue would have been nice. Yeah. Being able to pay the photographer, being able to pay the someone to get it all online, everything, all that mm. type of stuff. Yeah. And it's and it's important because um, for anyone who didn't go, it's there's just a poster on the website and mm. they don't really know, you know, and so it's really important that we do that. Um, but I haven't had the time and I haven't got the photographs. Um, and in the past I have, I've like done all of that, done all the archive for WW and it's really, really exhausting. So I've been a bit lax on all of that. Um, and that's the other reason why doing all those shows that we were doing back in the beginning, eight shows, 10 shows a year, it's all of that um, website updating, mm. all those photos every show and all the pre the press marketing yeah. and it's just full on it's just really really full on yeah. and, and you have to pace yourselves yeah. but so yeah after doing the Nathan Rock show here which was great um, I um, I've done a couple, a couple of little things but I've sort of taken a bit of a break again take some time off to do some painting trying to do some painting yeah I had a solo I had a solo show of my own work in September but yeah so I had this I had a solo show in September um, and that was my first, the first solo show of my work for about 20 years. Because wow, wow. I've always been showing other people's yeah. work. And that was, um, that was a really strange experience for me. Um, and I felt for the first time like, oh, I really need a curator to help me. <laughs> because I'm so used to looking at other people's work and yeah. saying, well, maybe you yeah. consider this. And, you know, and that's the benefit of being an artist and a curator is I think that's the difference between sort of an academic curator and an mm. artist curator is if you have got that interest and that genuine interest and sensitivity towards practice you know someone's practice or um, materials or whatever it is then you can come in and you can sort of question or why have you put that there or is there a reason why that's there and just sort of provoke them a little bit like you know um, in a positive way, yeah. Um, and and um, and it's always easier for someone else to see it. Like mm. when you were curating each other's shows, you said. And when I did this solo show, I felt really, really um, sort of naked. <laughs> and, um, and I didn't. I mean, I had a couple of friends look and sort of give me, but I, I, I just sort of had to do it, and it was, uh, it was a different experience, and. Unlike when I curate shows and I host them um, at private views, and I'm always um, sort of feel in control. Business mode. Business yeah, mode. Yeah. Exactly. For my for my solo show, I got so drunk on the private <laughs> view because I just kind of thought, ah! <laughs> yeah. and I just drank, and I was just completely just the opposite it was just yeah I went into artist mode and um, <laughs> sounds great and I let the um, and I let 
the lady who was organising it kind of do the business thing. Yeah. The business mode thing. I mean, that's how it should be, really. That's how it should yeah. be, yeah, yeah. But it was, um, it was scary. It was definitely yeah. scary for me. Especially after a break of, like, 20 years. Yeah, like, I mean, I've had bits of my work in shows. Yeah, but... But, but not, so not when it's just all eyes. Um, and it did propel my, my practice forward a little bit. And, um, yeah, so I've got to... Got, I've, um, I'm... Yeah, I'm excited about making work again. Um, and I mean, it's still tough balancing that with a very demanding four and a half year old. Um, but yeah, we'll see. That's So that's really why I've taken a pause from Dry Run and a pause from Solo Award, partly to reevaluate those things, but also to spend a bit of time this year um, pushing my own practice or doing some painting. I mean, I'm not just a painter. The, the, the September show, it was an installation, and there's sculpture and there's painting, and you'll be able to see on, mm. on my website. Um, and um, just sort of seeing, giving myself a chance, really, for a change. And mm. one thing I would say, having done the artist thing, done the curator thing, done the gallerist thing, done the art fair thing, um, one thing I would say is that Although I still like talking and meeting people and all of that and engaging, um, if I manage to focus on my work and manage to make some good work and someone wants to come along and show my work and sell my work, I would be so absolutely delighted for them to have their 50% or 40% because I know how hard that is. Um, And um, very different from the mumblings maybe my own mumblings and other people's mumblings when like, when you're starting out as an artist, oh, galleries, they really rip you off. Um, and now, and that's why it's, that's why it's also really good to, to do both. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, to, to really appreciate how, you know, people just see you, people used to just see me looking glamorous at a private view, sipping Prosecco and just think, oh, yeah, she's got a charmed life. Mm. Um, and it's like, that's just the tip of the iceberg. So yes, absolutely, I'd be absolutely delighted for someone to take their percentage um, on my on my work so we'll see but yeah try so yeah 2019 for me is about being more um being less altruistic and more selfish i think great sounds good <laughs> <laughs> that's sort of a good place to wrap it up, then, I think. Yeah. up yeah. yeah thank you for having us in the studio and thank you for listening yeah thank you